I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. We uh, left off here from our study a couple weeks back because of a couple things that occurred, Presbyterian and Easter, and so we're back to finish up 18 through 25. We haven't really formally dealt with 24 through 25 or the beginning of, of 18, so we're going to look at that today. Um, Paul is talking about the benefits that flow from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're saved, it comes with perks. And the perks are referenced in this passage, chapter 8, describing the glorious things that God gives us because of Jesus Christ. No condemnation, etc. And we're on the, the sixth one. The next week's one would have been the seventh one, 26 to 27, but I began this series with that. And so we're going to go to next week, 28 through uh, 30, to talk about the, the eighth and final uh, benefit. But today we're on 18 through 25, and so let me invite you to stand together with me as we read God's word uh, together. Hear now the word of our King. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of the call that you've placed upon us to not only know you, but now, Lord, to fellowship with you to be in your word in the next 40 minutes or so and enjoy fellowshipping with you. God, feed us richly, we pray. Give us grace, everyone here, to be responsive to, what, to your word. Open our ears, open our eyes, open our heart that we might feast upon your word and delight ourselves in Christ. God, we entrust our souls to you now. Bless this time. Bless the preaching of your word unto your glory and praise, giving unction and power both to the preacher and to the receiver of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Most of you are aware that at the dawn of the new heavens and the new earth, Christ is going to host a wedding feast. The Lord's Supper points to that. The fourth cup is that cup enjoyed at the wedding feast. There's going to be a wedding feast where at which time Jesus Christ is going to come to us publicly, individually, and commend us. We read about that in 1 Peter 1.7, how the Lord is going to give us praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet that's not all. You realize at that moment when that happens, we ourselves will already be in our glorified bodies, our glorified state. Um, according to Philippians 3, 20, 21, let me read the, the latter part. He will transform the body of our humble state 
into conformity with the body of His glory. Think about that. He's going to transform our bodies into conformity with His at that wedding feast. So when you think of this, when you read about this, you can read it and think of, your, think of the future as, in the, the, as if in the present, and that would be a mistake. We will be glorified. Our bodies will be like His. And we're still not done. There's so much more. That will have occurred right after, according to the text before us, verse 23, that um, our, our, who we are, our true identity, will be revealed to the world. The whole world will have seen that all along we are the children of God. And then at that wedding feast, we will begin, or we will, uh, um, yeah, uh, begin more fully understanding the adoption of sons. We saw that from verse 19. How in verse 19 we read that the, um, our creation is, is waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, and thus the full adoption. Um, and uh, um, so brothers and sisters, actually in 23, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. So at this time, it's going to be this glorious, amazing moment that doesn't end. It's going to uh, continue. And because of that glorious future before every one of us the lord has repurposed creation at the fall that's what we already saw from this verse god has repurposed creation upon the fall to have built into it a message that if you're a child of god and have eyes to see and ears to hear you're to heed that message every year all year long and that message is, is that um, uh, creation, verse uh, 20, read it with me. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will. And futility means it can no longer fulfill its, 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 its intended end. It was subjected to uh, futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself someday also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So just as we are going to be glorified, so God is going to glorify this earth and restore it to what it was. Until then, the seasons, and that's what's going on in 2021, the seasons, the four seasons that we live through every single year are there to proclaim a message. Recall the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones when we looked at that. Nature, every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something a permanent. It has come out of the death and the darkness of, of all that is true of the winter and the spring. It seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be going through, the sun, through some kind of birth pangs year by year. But unfortunately, it does not succeed. For spring leads only to summer, where summer leads to autumn and autumn to, to winter. Poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity that God gave it, its, its inability to be what it's supposed to be. The principle of death and decay and, de- and disintegration that is in it. But it cannot do so. It fails every time. It's, it, it still goes on trying as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never uh, succeeds. Well, brothers, we saw a couple weeks back, one day it will. When God brings us up to himself, destroys uh, the earth, there's going to be a spring that breaks out. And that spring is going to grow into a summer that, that, that has no end and no limitation. 
trees. And I think of an untainted world by sin, a world untainted by sin. So every year we see the seasons. Even now when you see spring, I don't know about you, but I look at my trees and it seems like overnight they're green. Overnight there's flowers upon them. What happened? Where did it go? I mean, you know, where did winter go? Where are we? So fast. And yet you and I both know it's trying. It wants to become that which God enabled it to be or called it to be, made it to be. But it's going to fall short. Soon summer's going to come and there's going to be some heat nights, hot nights, which in glory will never be. So every season should, should uh, find you mindful of this world is, is waiting. I must too likewise live and wait for the glory that is to come in Jesus Christ. Now that is the passage we've been looking at. However, the question now is, what difference does this truth ought to make in our lives? What difference ought this truth to make in our lives this day? What difference? And that's the last part of this text, because Paul gives us that difference. There's two of them. Would you notice with me first, the promise of glory, what I just related to you, leads to a biblical outlook when it comes to life in this age. We're going to begin in verse 18. Paul wrote, for I consider, mark that word, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, first and foremost, Paul is not talking about a suffering. Look at your text again. He's not talking about a suffering. He's talking about all sufferings. Every suffering you could ever have in your lifetime, in the course of your lifetime, including perhaps a horrible death, all of that suffering, he's putting on on one side. And he says, I consider. Now, when we read those words, it sounds like Paul is giving us his personal opinion. Guys, personally speaking, this is how I think of things. That is not what he's doing here. The word uh, uh, consider in the Greek is much stronger than that. It's logizomai. Um, where we get the word logic or reasoning or thinking. It carries the idea of um, um, certain knowledge and refers to a settled uh, conclusion, certain knowledge by careful study, calculation, and reasoning. And so Paul here is not talking about a personal opinion. He's talking about reality. After looking at Scripture as much as I have through the inspiration and the work of the Spirit of God in my life, this is reality. And what is it? That, that this, all of the sufferings put together are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The word for worthy is the key word in that verse. Oxaos. The word worthy comes from commerce. And it, was, it refers to the weight necessary to balance a scale. So if something's worthy, it's weighty. The Hebrew, the Old Testament Hebrew word for this would be a kaved, heaviness, glory, okay? I conclude that if you take all of the sufferings that you're going to experience in your lifetime, all of them, place them on one side of the, the scale and on the other side, the glorious future that awaits us in Christ, what we just read about. The realization of all these benefits, that that, the weight of your sufferings wouldn't even budge the scale. Have you ever seen scales when you're, when you're if, if you've ever uh, seen it, where you, or you, maybe you step on, on a, a gym scale, you know, uh, the one that goes you know, up when you put enough weight on, on it. As you get close, it starts to just move. A little pebble moves it, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and no, it's back down, right? Um, 
Paul's saying, if you were to drop from a thousand foot height all of the sufferings and miseries you're going to experience in your life and it would hit that side of the balance beam, it wouldn't even budge. That is what, that is the glory and the, glo- the amazing future that God has planned for you and me in Jesus Christ. That's the sixth benefit. Everything that we've seen uh, thus far is so amazing. Therefore, it will change the way you and I view this world. In what way does it change it? Well, and how is it that, that earthly suffering can't budget at all? Let me give you three things real uh, quickly. Number one, the reason why is because earthly suffering is, is a temporal. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. For momentary light affliction, momentary light affliction is, produ- is uh, producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all a comparison. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you something. What is a hundred year life in comparison to eternity? Think of eternity. Eternity is never ceasing. What is a hundred years in that context? You'd say not even a blip, not even a moment, not even a second. It's less than a blip. That's how short 100 years are. Well, if 100 years is that short, how short are the sufferings that you and I are experiencing in the world in which we live? I mean, much of our lives heretofore have been pretty posh. So let's just pile up all the difficult days. How many days would that be in our lives? By the time that we end, maybe a year, two years, five years. Let's say they added up to 10 years. You're going to spend 10 years out of a 90-year life, 10 years of misery. If you put them back to back, it'd be 10 years of miserable days. I think that's stretching it. I don't think any of us have had that or will have that. But let's just say you did. What are, if 100 years is less than a blip, what's 10 years? So first realize the sufferings that we have, yes, they are, they are painful and yes, they hurt, but they're so momentary in comparison to the end game that God has in mind for you and me. God has the end game in mind. Everything going on in our lives, he's not thinking of the present. We wish he was, and we're thankful he's not. But he's not. He's thinking of the end game. The end game's glory. And therefore, all of the sufferings, Paul says, are nothing. They're momentary. Secondly, would you notice, earthly suffering cannot take from us anything that God will restore a hundredfold in, in Christ. Every suffering that you and I have cannot genuinely rob you of anything of substance. Of substance. Now we're talking against the kingdom of God. Now on this side of the grave, if wealth is important, then of course suffering can rob you of wealth, right? How many people have lost their their lives, you know, except their personal life, everything in this Ukrainian war? They lost it all. But brothers and sisters, they haven't lost anything of substance, right? Money is like wings, Job says, and takes off like wings. You don't need trial to go to lose your money. It's of non-consequence, ultimately, against, against uh, eternity. I tell you this, any glory, you're not going to look back and go, man, do I wish I had more money. You're not gonna think. So whatever is of substance, hear this, will impact eternity. So if it's of substance, if you lost it here, you'd regret it in eternity. That substance. And brothers and sisters, suffering cannot touch that. Cannot touch anything in you that's of substance. Listen to Matthew 19. Peter said, Lord, what's in it for us? 
In Christ's answer, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. This is Christ says, brothers and sisters, you, yeah, you're leaving your family, but if they're in Christ, you haven't left them. I was thinking about this as I was working on this this morning meditating. Brothers and sisters, what parent is there who raises their kids to stay home? Now, when you have young, young kids... That's a strange concept to hear someone say, they're leaving. No, they're not leaving. My little precious six-month-old baby's not leaving me. What are you talking about? But think about it. Every single time you teach them to be in any way independent, to walk, help them to walk, help them to feed themselves, you're launching them. And it's normal for us to go after 18 years, it's time to be launched. And that's healthy. And it may hurt, but that's healthy. Brothers and sisters, what person loses a spouse? loses a child, loses a parent in Christ. You don't. When your child leaves the home at 18, did you lose your child? Not at all. They just simply matured. They're on to something else. They're on to what they should be on. Brothers, likewise, if you lose anything of substance on this side of the grave, one, you can't. But if you think that you have, I've lost my son, they died or whatever, you haven't lost them. You haven't lost them at all. In Christ incredible so nothing in this world nothing in this world can rob you of anything of substance thirdly earthly suffering cannot keep us from receiving god's promised glory so not only can it not rob you of any of anything of substance on this side of the grave but do you understand that nothing that can occur on this side of the grave in terms of suffering can keep you from all that God has promised in this passage and more? Listen to um, John seventeen twelve. Speaking of his disciples, Christ said in his high priestly prayer, While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. Incredible. All the sufferings and difficulties, Christ said, they were unscathed. I didn't lose them. I didn't lose any given to, uh, to me, not one. Incredible. And thus, brothers and, and sisters, Christ could say in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall, uh, shall snatch them out of my hand. That's talking about you and me. Because of that glorious truth, God will not lose any of us and everything he's promised us cannot be lost. That's why Paul says, um, I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he, he's able to guard what I've entrusted him until that, that day. Incredible. And thus, Romans 8, he can say, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So, brothers and sisters, why is it that, that sufferings, as painful as they are on this side of the grave, are so light? Because they're temporal, they can't rob you of anything of substance, and they can't keep you from what God's going to give you in, uh, in eternity. That's why Paul said, after researching it and studying it in Scripture, by divine revelation, I can tell you, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. Now, a couple thoughts. Application. Brothers and sisters, I dare say everyone in this room has gone through suffering. And if you haven't, or better yet, you've gone through suffering so much that you know how painful that it was. And if you haven't had that pain, either you're lying to yourself, 
you're playing church, you're, you're playing uh, a religion, or you haven't tried yet. You haven't gone through the trials yet. Either way, you and I both know life on this side of the grave brings with it pain and difficulty. But yet Paul, what he writes there, makes it sound like you and I should be impervious to that pain. I mean, we should walk around and say, hey, your wife was just killed. Woohoo! praise God. You know what? Did you have a bad marriage? No, I had a great marriage. Praise God, she, she's with Jesus. You know, hey, you just lost everything. The Sabians have come through, ravished your you know, entire life. Woohoo! praise God. I'm not going to bow down like uh, Job and, and, and tear my, my cloak and be in pain before God. No, I'm going to just praise God, praise Jesus. Is that what this text is saying? It's not. Understand, in the the Bible, suffering is real and it ought to be, uh, there ought to be tears. That's why Paul says, weep with those who weep. Tears are appropriate on this side of the grave. Would you notice with me a couple of uh, uh, truths about uh, uh, pain? Fill in the blank. This world is wrought with genuine difficulty, brothers and sisters. The Bible is true with regards to that truth. This world is wrought with genuine difficulty. Notice, Christ in the garden sweat drops of blood. In fact, he even prayed, Lord, take this cup from me if possible. He didn't just flip it. He didn't just go off his back like water in a, a duck. He didn't say, oh, no big deal. He, he wept drops of blood. He sweated. I'm sorry, drops of blood. He wept tears because of the pain of this world. And he prayed that God would take away the cup. Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica because he could no longer endure it. Paul suffered. He suffered so much. He was in tears. He could no longer handle it. He had to send Timothy. This world weighed upon that man. Um, notice with me, Christ, who, it was Christ who said, in the world you have philipsis. It's the word used in, in, in winemaking for the pressure needed to break a, a grape. In the world you have so much pressure you want to break. That's the world in which we live. And the same man who in 2 Corinthians 4 called his afflictions momentary and light, in 2 Corinthians 12 requested that his thorn be removed because it was so painful. So we're not talking pie in the sky here. We're not saying that if you hear this, you should walk away saying, see, I told you, when difficult times come, we should say, praise Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is, folk, uh, uh, that is fake and phony. Folk. <laughs> fake and phony. Folk, uh, whatever. It's fake and phony. We ought to be grieved by the things of this life. We ought to be people moved. If there's anyone moved in this world, we ought to be moved. Because we know truth, we know reality, we know where we're going, and we know this isn't what God planned. So we ought to be moved. Well, what's Paul saying here? He's using a comparison. Just like when Christ said, unless you hate your father and mother, you're not worthy to be my disciple. He's not saying hate your mom, your your mother and, and sister or whatever. He's not saying hate them. He's saying in comparison to your love for me, your love for anything on this side of the grave is going to look like hatred. In glory, I guarantee you, you're going to look back and go, I thought I loved my, my mom and dad. I didn't, man. I was so selfish. When they didn't give me my way, I did temper tantrums when I was three. And when they didn't give me my way when I was 25, I did temper tantrum in another way. I didn't love them. I didn't pour my life out for, for them. Comparison to what, how, what Christ has done for, for me, my love towards them is hatred. Clearly. So it's a comparison. So look with me, verse 18, one more time. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. He's doing a comparison. So he's not saying don't live life and be hurt, or, or, or better yet, um, you know, take lightly the pain that you're going through. No, weep with those who weep. Cry, be in mourning, certainly. 
But brothers and sisters, don't do it by giving more weight to what to the loss and the sadness than you ought. So just as well as the, as the pendulum ought not to be here saying we take lightly the pain and sufferings in this world, we ought not, on the other hand, to take them with too much weight. And we do that two ways, brothers and sisters. One, we allow difficulties and loss and trial to define us. Don't do that. That would be wrong. That would be sin. But we do that all the time. You'll meet Christians who are defined by their sin. What defines us? It's Christ. That's all that defines That's it. Jesus Christ is love for me. That's what defines me. Not my sin, not my loss. But so many people would be defined by their loss. You know, I did this, and this is, this is going to go. I was a victim. I was a victim in this way. We have a victimized uh, mentality that I'm a victim. That is my biggest problem right now in Christianity with this movement where we're trying to do race reconciliation. Let's get beyond what has happened to us and let's define us not by what's happened to us, but by what Christ has done to us and for us and within us and through us and, by, and what he will do for us. That's what defines us, not what happens on this side of the grave. This is filled with sin and misery. Don't let it define you. But then secondly, don't let the sufferings and difficulties of this life define God. And that's what Job did. Right? Difficulty happened and he began going, hmm, let me conclude things about God by what happened to me. God must not be kind because he didn't give me what I want. Brothers and sisters, God has the end game in mind. Just like you as a parent have the end game in mind. When your child acts arrogantly, doesn't uh, do something, and something breaks, do you go, oh, no big deal, we're going to pay for it. No, you say, you know, you were being arrogant, you wouldn't necessarily say that, but you're thinking, he was being arrogant, though. this child needs to learn to value labor, so I'm going to have him work for it, he has to work that off. Oh, you horrible parent, what an evil, wicked being. No, you're a loving parent, trying to help your child grow and mature in this world. That's what God's doing, he has the end game in mind. So don't define God's character by what, he, by what happens to you. Define God's character by the word. And then let God's character define what happens to you. And that's what we're seeing here. So one, brothers and sisters, what we've learned here should lead us to a biblical outlook on life. That we, that we don't overreact to the difficulties and we don't underreact to them. But we take them... Um, against eternity, and we see them for what they really are. Yes, they're things to weep over. Yes, they're things to be sad about. But brothers and sisters, there's not things to define me, and they're not things to define God. Rather, we take them, and we, may, and, and we use them to make us long for Jesus Christ more. So that's the first one. It leads us to a biblical outlook on life, verse 18. Secondly, would you notice, the promise of glory leads us to an end-time perspective in our current living. Notice 24, we're going to pick it up there. For in hope we have been saved. Now I want you to pause for a little bit. Look at that phrase with me a little bit. In hope we have been saved. That's an incredible statement. The word saved, let's, let, let me, let, listen to me here, don't lose me here. The word saved we know means I'm saved because I'm relying upon Jesus. So in hope we have, we have faith in Christ. You, you, you buy that, have it lost anybody can we take that first phrase in hope we have faith in christ in hope we have been saved so part and parcel of our faith in christ brings with it hope so get this christianity you know is all about faith 
right? We live in light of the unseen. We are trusting a Savior we've never seen, who died on a cross which we never witnessed, to forgive us for our sins, all of our sins which we do not see, to reconcile us to a being who we do not know until Jesus opens our, our eyes. It's all faith. All of Christianity, you know this, is a life of faith. Unlike the world, we are going to be living our lives out, trusting in something which they cannot see, which is why Paul says in First um, or, or uh, Peter, though you, um, though, uh, no, it's John, First John, though you do not see him now, you love him. Even though you haven't seen him, you love him. Christianity is all about living in light of things unseen that God, by his spirit, has opened our eyes to see. We, right? We all see that. Well, brothers and sisters, he's linking hope to faith. In essence, what he's saying is, if you're going to live by faith, then your life will be characterized by hope. Do you understand that? In hope, you have been, we have been saved. If you're going to live by faith in Christ, that means hope will be a massive theme in your life. Now, I'm making a big deal about that because, brothers and sisters, you look around Christianity, hope is not a massive theme. It's all but gone. We don't live with hope. Now, I'm not saying that we're walking around hopeless. I'm saying that we walk around ignorant of anything to have hope in other than the temporal. But would you look at that verse? In hope, we have been saved. God expects us to have a major part of our living on this earth will be living in hope. What's the between hope and faith? They're used very closely. Faith, the, what's the object of faith? What's the object of faith? What is it? It's a person. Christ, right? The object of our faith is a person. What's the object of our hope? It's the promise of that person. Do you see what the difference is? Faith we live by faith. We live our lives relying upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We rely upon him to take away our sin, and we rely upon him to grow us and all, all of that, to protect us. We rely upon him. Hope is relying upon the promises he's given us in, in his word. And what is one of those promises? Romans 8, 20, 18 through 25, our future glory. And so when Paul says, brothers and sisters, do you understand? You've been saved to live in hope. You've been saved to say, I'm resting my soul on the character of God and I'm going to live my life trusting the promises of God. That's how I'm going to live. So Paul says, everything I've just told you has incredible application to your life because your day-to-day-in basis ought to be lived anticipating those promises. I remember when I was a little kid, I don't remember much of this trip, but I was a little guy, my mom and dad... Inherited a lot of money. Uh, her mom died, got a lot of money, and they decided we're going to California. So we were going to go on a California trip, and we all had to go to bed, I believe, at 6, 7. I, I was a little guy. I don't know the time, but it was daylight. We all had to go to bed because the next morning we're going to get up at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning to drive to California. And I remember laying in bed in hope. <laughs> I couldn't sleep. I'm laying there thinking about tomorrow we're going to California. I remember that vividly. Not sleeping, laying there in a light room going, how can I sleep? We're going to California tomorrow. I can't wait. And then I eventually fell asleep, obviously. Okay, I've been awake ever since. Um, Right? In hope. 
Brothers and sisters, how much of what we've been studying in this passage moves you on a day-to-day basis? If it doesn't, then you're not living in hope. What is hope? Hope is a confident expectation. Elpis. Um, It is much more than just a feeble wish or desire. That's how we use it in this world. I hope uh, the Broncos win. I hope I get a pay raise. I hope the sun will come out tomorrow or whatever. I hope it doesn't snow. I hope it doesn't freeze and ruin my flowers. It's a vain wish. Biblical hope is not a vain wish. It is a confident expectation which you base your soul on because it's based upon the promises of a God you're trusting. So you see how it's confident expectation? It's something that you know is going to happen. I define biblical hope as this. It's living in light of tomorrow's promises uh, today. Biblical hope is living in light of tomorrow's promises today. It's as if they've already come. That's biblical hope. Okay, so he says, in hope we have been saved. Now, he then goes on to give us two facets of the nature of this hope. Notice our, our two facets of this hope. First, it's nature, 24b. But, in hope, but, but, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does, one hope, hope, uh, why does one also hope for what he sees? At Rome, there were some people who believed that they were spiritual leaders, spiritual Green Beret. We know that from certain verses. Romans 12, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. 